I thought uh, just at the start uh, to help us get to know each other a little bit better and also, uh, to be honest, just for a bit of a laugh, I thought I'd show you a photograph of our youngest daughter who is already very serious about reading the Bible. (laughs) Now, uh, she is actually our fourth daughter. And here is the hilarious true story of how we chose her name. My wife, Julia, goes into labor very suddenly. We're in the back of the ambulance racing to the hospital. And in the back of the ambulance, it occurs to me that we have already used up all of our girls' names on our first three daughters. And so you may be amused to know that looking for a bit of last-minute inspiration... I ask the ambulance lady, by the way, what's your name? And she said, Tanith. I said, pardon? She said, Tanith. I said, how do you spell that? She said, T-A-N-I-T-H. She said, do you know what it means? I said, no. She said, it means the serpent lady. So, we called our baby girl, Emma. (laughs) Anyway, here is a family photo of all six of us. And uh, the reason why we had Emma was because we wanted to uh, have a relationship with her. I mean, we're definitely going to love Emma. And we were kind of hoping that she might love us back. And so, the idea that she might love us back, that was so exciting that we decided to bring Emma into the world. Now... The Bible says that the reason why God has made us is a little bit like that. God has made us for relationship. And I was wondering whether maybe I could illustrate this now to you with the help of a dramatic sketch. Yeah, I like the excitement. Um, (laughs) We haven't even done it yet. Wow. Um, So uh, this, ladies and gentlemen, is not a rehearsed sketch. So it could go horribly wrong, but it will hopefully be a little bit of fun. Uh, Now, because I don't come from this church, I really thought that I should ask our host, Mark, for some recommendations when it comes to the volunteer actors. So first of all, in my sketch, I need someone to play the part of God. And so I asked Mark, Mark, who in your church would you choose to be God? Who in your church, Mark, is pure and full of love? Who in your church, Mark, when they stand here on the stage, even their physique will strike us as almost divine? I said, Mark, is there anyone in your church who is so physically impressive that when they stand here on the stage, we will all be awestruck? And quick as a flash, he said, yes, John Cressy. So, John, can you go up here? Come on, John. John. I wonder if you'd be kind enough, John, could you just stand on this chair? Stand on the chair? Fantastic. Just just face forward. Now, just I told you there'd be a reaction. Now, just to explain, John has absolutely no idea what he's going to be asked to do uh, in this sketch. But John, seeing as you are God, I was wondering whether you could act out, whether you could improvise the creation of the universe. You might like to throw some stars into space. You might like to create the heavens and the earth. You create a way, I will be talking. Off you go. So off he goes. 
He creates the universe. And the pinnacle of God's creation is man. And of course, initially, God and man are tremendously good friends. But then sadly, sadly, man becomes arrogant and proud. And so I need someone to play the part of man. And so I asked Mark. I said, Mark, who in your church, Mark, could play the part of man? Who in your church, Mark, is glorious and noble, but ultimately depraved? (laughs) Who in your church, Mark, has greatness within him, but has become fallen, tarnished, and vain? I said, Mark, is there anyone in City Church Sheffield who was made in the image of God, but has now become obsessed with his own appearance? And quick as a flash, he said, yes, Mark Willoughby. So, Mark, can you come up here? Come on, Mark. Wonderful. Looking good. Like those socks. Fantastic. Could you just um, stand on the chair next to your loving Heavenly Father? Okay. Now, as you know, that that is exactly what we want. In fact, could you just show the good people of Sheffield all of the love of God? Show people. Oh, look at this. Hey! That's what we're looking for. That is how much God loves you and I. Now, initially, of course, it all starts off fantastically well. But then sadly, man is so chuffed with all the gifts that God has given him, so excited by all the opportunities, that he actually gets more interested in the gifts than in the gift giver. In fact, man turns his back on God. Can you just turn your back on God? And in fact, something a little bit sad happens, and that is that we're going to represent here some of the distance. Man, could you just get down off your chair for a second? And we're going to represent here some of the distance between God and man because man wanders away from God. Get back on your chair for a second, man. Now, this is a bit of a sad situation. God and man are now too far apart. It's too far for man to get back to God. And folks, this is so easily how our story could have ended were it not for the love of God because God is so loving that he calls for his son, Jesus Christ, to become a bridge. And so I need someone to play the part of Jesus. And so I asked Mark. I said, Mark, who in your church, Mark, is totally reliable? Who in your church? I said, Mark, consider all the members of the church. Who in your church is most like Jesus? Who in your church will be willing to lay down his life for the sake of other people this afternoon? And quick as a flash, he said, Dan Mayton. So, Dan, could you come up here? Dan, if you could just uh, stand on that chair in the middle. Dan, if you could just put your arms out like so. That's absolutely fantastic. Now, folks, we are now going to act out the crucifixion of Christ. Not entirely literally, although, Dan, there will be a certain amount of pain involved. Now, I wonder if you can imagine... How wonderful an opportunity man has. Because God is so loving that he's provided a way whereby man, if you were to turn around for a second and have a look over here, God is so loving that he has provided a bridge, a way, a means whereby if you were to hold on to Jesus, if you were to trust in Christ, if you were to put your body weight upon the cross, you could make it all the way back into the arms of your loving Heavenly Father. So why don't we encourage him as he goes? Off you go, man. Trust in Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. And he can make it back. Nearly. Oh, 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 oh. Nearly. 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 Yeah. Woo. Wonderful. You can get down now, guys. Well done. Come on, give him another round of applause. That was fantastic. Well done, guys. Fantastic. 
Now, can I just ask you, have you ever made that journey? Have you ever put your trust solely in Christ and his death on the cross? And can I ever, can I ask you, have you ever had that hug? Have you ever had the benefit of, mmm, yeah, being embraced, wow, in the arms of God? Because if you haven't had that experience, if you haven't had the benefit of that, this afternoon you can. And I'd love to give you an easy opportunity. All I'll do is I'll finish speaking. I'll invite the band to come back. We'll sing a song. And off the back of the song, I will offer a very short prayer, a prayer that you could pray, a prayer that's just basically you and I saying yes to God. And if you want to make that prayer your prayer, then I'll ask you to raise your hand and say, yeah, I want to make that prayer my prayer. And then if you have raised your hand, I'll ask you to come and stand here at the front simply because we'd love to pray for you. Before you head off home, we'd love to pray for you and uh, give you all the encouragement we can uh, at the end. So that's how we're going to finish up, just so that you know. Okay, well, today, guys, we get to hear the most famous story that Jesus ever told. And it's a story of a father and two sons. Acts 1, scene 1. The younger of the two sons says to his dad, Dad, when you die... I'm going to get quite a lot of your cash, but you're not dead yet. And I find that a bit inconvenient. So give me your money now, he says. Yeah. Anyway, so amazingly, the father says yes. And so the son stuffs his pockets with the cash and he goes off to a distant country. And of course, the money runs out and he ends up down on his knees. And Jesus says that he longs to eat the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So this guy is down on his knees And this is the lowest point in his life. And I just want to say that in a crowd this big, there's almost certainly going to be at least one or two of us here this afternoon. And right now, this is a tough time of life for you. I mean, maybe you've had a hard life. Maybe, well, let's be honest, you may have had a harder life than most people here. And you feel the pain of that. But I just want to encourage you, if you are over here, then actually there is hope for you in this story. Because actually, no matter how much of a distant, far-off dream this happy future might seem right now, no matter how far you feel to have wandered from this God character, no matter how deep a pit you might feel you're in right now, actually God's arm is long enough to reach down and get you out. And that's the good news this afternoon. But yeah, at the start of our story, there is... A large distance between the father figure over here who Jesus likens to God the Father and the son who Jesus likens to you and me. Now, for the son in our story, this is a deliberate kind of pre-planned rebellion. But I reckon that for most of us, it's not really a deliberate thing at all. I mean, it's ever so subtle. It's a process, I suppose, for most of us. It might be that we gradually crowd God out of our lives. It's ever so subtle. I mean, there isn't sort of one big decision. No, lots of hundreds of tiny incremental choices, and we kind of crowd God out of our lives, even by the way that we think. I mean, we're busy. We're busy with some good and important things. And so as we focus on those things, we kind of miss this father figure. But folks, if God does exist... If God made the planet that we're standing on, if God made the oxygen that we're breathing, then logically speaking, I suppose God should be number one 
in our lives. But so often he's not. I mean, not really. I mean, God's kind of on my radar somewhere. But hey, what if God did appear here visibly? What if the almighty father of all creation were to stand on this stage? What if the creator, our father, who fine-tuned the universe to permit life, who thought up neutrons and electrons and matter and antimatter and gravity and electromagnetism, what if our father were to stand here in front of us right now? How would I feel? How would you feel? I think I feel immediately conscious that I've pretty much taken the fact that anything exists for granted. Hey, if God stood here now, I'd feel immediately conscious of my selfishness and of my sins. And so, yes, we find ourselves separated from God. That's what's happened in our story. But the good news in Jesus' story is that when the son turns around and starts to head back home, when the father sees him coming, the father runs. I mean, this is one of the most exciting moments in the New Testament. The father runs to you this afternoon and throws his arms around you. Hey, this wasn't normal behavior. For a middle-aged, Middle Eastern landowner to hitch up his skirts and bare his legs in the heat of the day and run. But God runs to you. And yet, lots of us have an image of God in our mind. And we think, you know, if God even knows that I exist. I mean, if God has any feelings about me, then I'm probably a bit of a disappointment to him. But that is not the picture that's painted here. By Jesus, of how God the Father feels about you. No, according to Jesus, the picture here is of a father who's eagerly getting up every day, scanning the horizon, thinking, this might just be the day when my boy comes home every single day looking for you. And then when he sees you coming this afternoon, he runs. God sets off with a burst of speed. Jesus says he has compassion for you. And if you are a bloke here this afternoon, try this one on for size. Jesus says that God kisses you. Hmm. And so we can be sure that God's heart is beating fast, that you're here this afternoon. He knows that you're here. And his heart's beating fast. He passionately and devotedly loves you. And you know what happens in Jesus' story? The son drops to his knees and says, Oh, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. Make me like one of your hired men, he says. But he doesn't get to finish his speech because the father figure scoops him up and they have this superb embrace. Folks, this represents God's heart of love. Jesus' whole point here is that God's heart instinctively towards you is one of unconditional love. Jesus' whole point is this, that this hug is seriously good news for you and for me. You know, two years ago, uh, I was sitting in a cafe in Nottingham with my friend Mark Ritchie. And Mark is a professional storyteller. And in the cafe, he says to me, uh, he tells me this anecdote about the previous day watching TV uh, with his wife. He says, I'm watching the snooker with my wife. And immediately I think, what? How does that work? Anyway, so um, he's watching the snooker with his wife. And um, so they're watching the telly. And Terry Griffiths comes on and tells this amazing story about Alex Hurricane Higgins. Now, if 
You are unfamiliar with the world of late 1970s, early 1980s professional snooker. Then let me just say that both of these guys are former world champion professional snooker players. And of the two, Alex Higgins was a bit of a wild man. Alex Higgins was disqualified from one snooker tournament for headbutting one of the tournament officials. You think, how can you get that annoyed playing snooker? But anyway. So anyway, Alex, uh, Terry Griffiths comes on, tells this amazing story about Alex Higgins. Terry Griffiths comes on and says, look, when I first turned pro, Terry Griffiths says, I used to go around all the tournaments with my dad, Terry Griffiths' dad. And he says, just before this world championship final, Terry Griffiths versus Alex Higgins, Terry Griffiths takes his dad to one side and says, now listen, dad, I'm going to give you some advice, dad. For about half an hour at the end of the final, irrespective of whoever's won, irrespective of whether I've beaten Higgins or Higgins has beaten me, dad, listen, I'm just, I love you, dad, but I'm just going to give you some advice. Alex Higgins, dad, listen, don't talk to him. Don't go up to him. Don't congratulate him. Don't commiserate with him. Because, Dad, listen, he's a bit volatile. Okay? Well, in the final, Terry Griffiths does beat Alex Higgins. But Terry Griffiths' dad does not take his son's advice. Oh, no! Terry Griffiths' dad goes straight up to Alex Higgins as soon as the match is over in a back room away from the cameras and shakes Alex Higgins by the hand. And, of course, Alex Higgins immediately recognizes who this is. And and Alex Higgins says, right, well, you can tell your blankety-blank son, Terry, that he's a beeping, beep, blankety-blank, beep, beep, beep. And he just lets him have this tirade of abuse. And when the swearing's kind of died down a bit, Terry Griffith's dad is still holding on to Alex Higgins' hand. And Terry Griffiths looks him straight, Terry Griffith's dad looks him straight in the eye and says, you know what, Alex? I am really proud of my son, Terry, but Alex... If you were my son, I would be really proud of you. But Alex, if you were my son, I would be really proud of you. At these words, Alex Higgins bursts into tears and throws his arms around Terry Griffith's dad and just starts sobbing on his shoulder like this. At this point, Terry Griffiths walks into the room. To see this unbelievable sight of his dad and the hurricane having a cuddle. And you're just left with this picture in your mind of this world champion snooker player, Alex Higgins, who's desperately craving a father's approval. I mean, more than anything else, what Alex Higgins really needs is Alex Higgins needs his dad to come up to him and say, come over here, son. Come on, let me give you a hug. Listen, Alex, son, I do love you and I am really proud of you. And so, for some of us, I guess listening to this, there's got to be at least one or two of us here this afternoon, and maybe your dad wasn't everything that he could have been. Maybe your dad wasn't everything that he should have been. And so even listening to this talk can kind of create in us kind of raw feelings and bubbling emotions. Maybe your dad never has convinced you that he is really proud of you and that he does cherish you. So there's a lot of pain in some of our hearts. But folks, that is not the picture that's painted here by Jesus of how God the Father feels about you. No, this God the Father, he will never make a promise and then break it. He'll never let you down. That's the picture that Jesus paints. 
This is a father who will hold you tight and who will say, I am your father and I am really proud of you. And so tonight you can call this awesome, powerful creator, the loving father who created the oceans and the mountains. You can call him what Jesus called him and Jesus called God Abba in Aramaic. Dada, we might say in English, or father. Wonderful. You can make that connection this afternoon. So the father runs to the son. He embraces the son. And this is what he says. He says to the servants, quick, get the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. And then the father says, let's kill the fattened calf and celebrate. Wonderful celebration. Party time starts. And you know, it says in Luke 15 in this chapter, what will happen in heaven in a few minutes time as we finish up the message and the band come back and I'll pray the prayer and I'll say, hey, if you want to make that prayer your prayer, why don't you raise your hand? At that moment, according to Jesus in Luke 15, something like this happens in heaven. God the Father turns to the angels and says, angels, angels, gather around and come with me to City Church Sheffield. And the angels say, what, again? And God the Father says, yeah, again, come on, come on, come on. So all the angels come. And all the angels gather here in this place. And maybe on the back row, the very first person says, yeah, I want to make that, but they put their hand up, I want to make that prayer my prayer. At that moment, according to Luke 15, God the Father says to the angels, can you see over there, the guy in the back row with the white t-shirt? That is Andy. That's my boy. I'm so proud of him. And all the angels will go, woo! This is uh, Luke 15, verses 7 and 10. Woo! They'll be rejoicing today. It's what it says. And then God the Father says, oh, come over here, come over here. Can you see over here? You see that lady sitting on the chairs over the back there in the blue t-shirt? That is Becky. That's my girl. I'm so proud of her. Isn't she great? Can you see her? That I told, didn't I tell you she'd come? I told you she'd I told you she'd respond, isn't she great? And all the angels go, woo, Becky, woo, yay! Hey folks, the angels in heaven are not bored, cynical, British angels. <laughs> who are like, what is it we got to do? Rejoice, you want me to rejoice? How many times have we got to do this? I haven't got all day. You want me to rejoice, what, right now? What's his name? Andy, you want me to rejoice about Andy? All right, I'll rejoice. Watch this. Woo. <laughs> Becky. You want to rejoice about Becky? Woo. No. The angels in heaven are going, yay! The angels are, God is on your side. That's what it says in Luke 15. God celebrates your life. You know, the same um, conversation with my friend Mark in, in a cafe in Nottingham. He tells me this amazing story about his friend Neil. Neil and his mate are on a walking holiday in the Lake District. And as they're walking along, car parks up, a man comes out of the car, walks straight up to Neil and his friend, and says, guys, I am really sorry to bother you. I know I'm a total stranger. I know you've not met me before, but could I just ask you a massive favor? My 13-year-old son, Tom, is on a sponsored bike ride from John O'Groats in Scotland to Land's End in Cornwall. And in about two minutes, he is going to come over the brow of that hill on his push bike. Could you just join me in kind of cheering him on and sort of saying, come on, Tom, and encouraging him? Would that be okay? And Neil and his friends say, uh, yeah. 
Anyway, in the next two minutes, this dad gathers a crowd of seven Lake District walkers into a little crowd of people. They're all standing together. And of course, the next thing that happens is that this little sort of forlorn figure comes limping over the brow of the hill on his push bike, but not pedaling very fast. No, Neil says his body language kind of suggests that he's sort of saying, you know, when I first thought of doing a sponsored bike ride from Scotland to Cornwall, back then it seemed like a good idea. But now I'm actually doing it. Oh, it's horrible. And I just want to stop. And I don't care about charity anymore. (laughs) And of course, at this moment, when he's about to give up, he hears this sound. Come on, Tom! Come on, Tom! Not far to Cornwall now, Tom! Come on, Tom! Scotland's long behind. Come on, Tom! And of course, he hears his encouragement. He goes, yeah. Come on, Tom. Cycle all the way from Scotland. I'm in the Lake District. Come on, Tom, you can do this. Come on, Tom. And his little legs stop pumping. And Neil says, he goes flying over the horizon, disappears out of you. And you know, this dad then turns to these seven people and says, thank you so much. You know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to get back in my car. I'm going to drive on another couple of miles. I'm going to gather another little crowd of people. And I'm going to keep cheering them on all the way down. This dad says, as long as Tom wants to keep on cycling, I'm going to keep cheering him on. And that, folks, is the sound of heaven. Come on, Tom, with your name. God is for you and not against you. God is on your side. God is cheering you on. And somebody asks, is it really that simple? I mean, is the parable of the prodigal son really as simple as saying, well, we were together with God and everything was great, but all we wandered away. We shouldn't have done that. We wandered away. But hey, if only we'll turn around and head back, God will forgive us and everything will be okay. I mean, is it really that simple? Well, folks, for us here this afternoon, the great news is that for us it's that good. Because this afternoon, if we really do turn around and if we really do come back to him, then actually God really will forgive us and everything really will be okay. So for us, it's that good. For us, it's that simple. But for Jesus, the storyteller, it was not quite that simple. No, even as Jesus was telling this, his most famous ever story, Jesus already knew that it was going to be necessary for him, the storyteller, to die on a wooden cross in order to make the Father's forgiveness possible. You see, way back before Jesus ever told this story in Luke chapter 9, he says that he must be killed. And then after telling our story in Luke chapter 24, he says he predicts that he must be crucified. But why? Well, because Jesus was a man on a mission. And Jesus' mission was to make the Father's forgiveness a reality. And as you already know, forgiveness always costs something. So what did it cost God to forgive us? Well, Jesus knew that real sins have to be punished. If God's going to be the just judge of all the universe... If God's going to be like the ultimate moral authority in the universe, then of course he must punish sin. We'd never respect a judge who let sinners go free. I mean, just imagine if there was a a judge at the Old Bailey in the Central Criminal Court in central London who was just letting murderers go free. I mean, can you picture the scene? 
A man's brought in accused of murder. And the evidence is overwhelming. And so the jury is sent out to consider their verdicts. They come back after five minutes. Unanimous verdict, Your Honor. Guilty as charged. Can you imagine if the judge said, well, I agree, it's obvious he's guilty, but hey, boys will be boys. These things happen. Murder's not that serious. Hey, no need for any punishment for you. No, you can go, don't go out the back door. No, go out the front door. There'll be a lot of press and TV. Just push past them, get on the bus, go home. You're free to go. I mean, can you imagine what the Daily Mail would make of that? Next murderer comes in. Oh, no, sin doesn't matter. You can just go for it. No. Folks, If God is going to be the just judge of the universe, he must punish sin. And so, because in the first place we have distanced ourselves from God, because we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then actually right now we're standing over here on this chair. And if we stand over here, then when we die, well, you know, a hundred years from now, none of us are going to be here No, a hundred years from now, all of us will be standing before a holy God. And on that day, we'll be very aware of how far away we are from life, from the life of God that we cut ourselves off from. And so if we are dying over here, then the Bible says the result of sin is death or the wages of sin is death. And that's the implication, the sentence, if you like, that we're facing. But because God loves us so much, he's found the most amazingly ingenious way of still being just and still punishing sin justly without actually punishing you and me. God chose to punish his own son, Jesus, on the cross in the place of every single one who this afternoon responds to him. God chose to punish Jesus, his son, as our substitute. Jesus died in the place of everyone who responds to him. God did something amazing. Even though it was Adrian Holloway who sinned, God chose to punish Jesus for Adrian Holloway's sin. Just so that I might be embraced. Just so that you might be embraced back in the arms of your loving Heavenly Father. And it's amazing for me to consider that Jesus knew all that was coming to him and still volunteered for this rescue mission. You see, think about Jesus as he tells the story. In the story, when the son comes back, he has a wonderful robe put upon him. And yet Jesus already knew that at the end of his life, he was actually going to lose his back. As two Roman soldiers took a Roman flagellum and ripped his back off Jesus' body. But hey, in the story, when the prodigal son comes home, he gets a ring on his finger. Yet Jesus knew all the time that he would end up with a crown of thorns on his head. And at the end of the prodigal son story, when the son comes home, he gets sandals on his feet. And yet all the time, Jesus knew that at the end of his life, he'd end up with nine-inch Roman nails driven through his feet and hands. And so when Jesus went to the cross, when he climbed up, when he was pinned to this metal, to this wooden pole, and when he reached out his hands and then iron nails were driven into his hands and feet, Jesus, as it were, was creating or building a bridge. And Jesus was the only person who's ever lived who could have made this connection. 
When Jesus died, he really was connecting heaven and earth, but also he was uniquely qualified to connect God and man. Jesus was the only person who has ever lived who could potentially have ever brought these two parties together because Jesus was the only person who's ever lived who was fully God. Jesus was as much God as God the Father as God, as much God as God the Holy Spirit as God. The Bible says that all the fullness of the deity lived in bodily form. But Jesus was also a real bloke. He was a regular guy. He was a skilled manual laborer. He's a fact of history. There could be somebody here today who looks very similar to Jesus of Nazareth. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he really was connecting heaven and earth, God and man. And when he looked at this superb bridge that he built, like any skilled manual laborer, he looked back at his achievement. He looked back at 33 consecutive glorious years of perfect living. He never did anything wrong. And he felt, if you like, a surge of satisfaction knowing it was mission accomplished. He was the only person who could have ever built this bridge for you and me. But he'd done it. He built the bridge. And as he was on the cross, he was getting ready to breathe his last breath. Understandably, he cried out, mission accomplished. It is finished. And then he breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. Because he built the bridge. He'd done it. Everything that could ever be needed to bring you back to God had been achieved. Jesus had built the bridge. It was mission accomplished. And you know what? It was such a wonderful thing when I came to realize that. I think probably, if I'm honest, I became a Christian because of the promise of sins forgiven, of a way back to God, the guarantee of heaven when you die. But I just want to finish by saying that in this life, I got a number of benefits in this life that, to be honest, I wasn't expecting. I'm just going to mention two really quickly, and then we're done. First benefit for me when I became a Christ follower was peace. I got a new peace that wasn't there before. And so I just started to worry less about everything. And of course, when you worry less, you enjoy life more. Let me just tell you a hilarious true story about peace coming into my life. In our last house, one night at half past three in the morning, the alarm went off on the outside of our house. We had never heard the house alarm before, and it was incredibly loud. It's going, and I go downstairs, I go under the stairs, I punch in my four-digit code, and nothing happens. It's still going, I can't switch it off. And so I go to the fuse box. I disconnect the electricity supply to the entire house, but still it's going, I get a chisel, and I chisel away the electrical casing around the wires. Don't do this at home. I pull the wires out of the unit, and still it's going, at quarter to four in the morning, my semi-detached elderly next-door neighbors, Fred and Val, are in my living room, in their dressing gown. Fred has got his arms folded, and Fred is swearing at me. But still, this thing is going, I can't switch the thing off. At 20 to 4 in the morning, I think, right, the actual alarm is on the outside of the house. I need to go outside the house. I go out into the street. As I go out into the street, I can see two of my neighbors in the street, one of whom is almost entirely naked. (laughs) And they're just looking, thinking, Adrian, 
How hard can it be to punch in your four-digit code? I mean, what is the problem? Why are we in the road naked at 20 to 4? What's going on? But still this thing's going, oh, wah, oh, wah, oh, wah. After 25 minutes of this ear-piercing sound, I've got a ladder and a sledgehammer. <laughs> and I put the ladder up on the outside of my house. And I'm going up the ladder, holding my sledgehammer. And I'm going to smash this thing off the front of my house. And I draw back the sledgehammer. And at that moment, it stops. (laughs) And the peace. I can hear the birds singing. That's what it's like becoming a Christian. Because you see, over the years, the pressure builds. The family hassles. The relationship hassles. The relationship breakup hassles. The family hassles. The money hassles. Parental expectation. And the pressure builds and builds and builds. And then suddenly you put your hand up on a Sunday afternoon at City Church and this peace comes. It stops. There's a new peace there that wasn't there before. Now, in the Christian life, there is challenges, there's difficulties, there's hard seasons of life. But the difference is you go through those hard times and you've got a peace. The peace of Christ is in your heart. A peace that wasn't there before. And made such a difference to me. Second and last thing this afternoon is a new confidence. I'm going to finish by telling you a story about something that is now illegal in the UK. But sadly, back in the day, this sort of thing did very occasionally happen. This is a true story of a woman called Hannah who, when she was 15 years old, she was very unpopular at school and at the end of the school day, the teacher lost patience with her and made Hannah stand in front of the whole class. And then the teacher offered the chalk to any student who was willing to go and write on the blackboard what they thought of Hannah. And eventually some kid goes and writes some swear word, nasty name or whatever on the board. And eventually, of course, all the kids realize the teacher's allowing this. And so they all go up one after the other and they all write something horrible on the board about Hannah. At that moment, when there's 29 different swear words on the board, at that moment, the bell went. And so all the kids stood up and filed out of the classroom. The teacher stood up, the teacher left the classroom. And at that moment, for the first time, Hannah turned around. To look at these 29 names. And she thought to herself, you know, this isn't what strangers think of me. These are the people who know me best. This is who they say I am. And Hannah took a mental picture of that board and those 29 names. Many years later, Hannah went to see a counselor. And it just so happened this counselor was a Christian. And the Christian counselor said to Hannah, Hannah, I'm going to try and explain to you who Jesus is and what he was doing when he died on the cross for you. Hannah, picture yourself back in that classroom looking at that blackboard. And picture at that moment Jesus walking in, a 33-year-old man, not carrying a wooden crossbeam, but picture him carrying a wooden board rubber. And picture him, Hannah, going to that blackboard and wiping out from that board every single one of those 29 horrible names. And then picture him, Hannah, getting some cleaner and just squirting and cleansing every single trace of every single one of those 29 horrible names. And then picture him wiping the board completely clean. 
She said, picture Jesus then picking up the chalk and writing on the board, Hannah, who you will be if you choose to cross the bridge and trust in him. That Hannah, you will be loved. That you'll be accepted. That you'll be adopted. That you'll be affirmed. That you'll be a daughter of God. And you know what they did next? They got in the car and they drove to the school. And they found the right classroom. And she sat in the same chair. And of course, when they got there, it wasn't like blackboards and chalk. It was all like high tech, you know. So they got it to work. They got it to work. And they got those 29 beautiful names up on the screen. And Hannah looked at those beautiful names that she's loved, that she's accepted, that she's adopted. And that day, Hannah crossed the bridge. She trusted in Christ. And that day, she got a new confidence. And I want to finish with this sentence that if you this afternoon are willing to, when we pray the prayer in a second, I say, if you want to make the prayer your prayer, just raise your hand. If you're willing to raise your hand, then this afternoon, I mean, nobody's expecting right now a man to burst in those doors at the back and run up to you and give you a massive hug. But this afternoon, if you do respond, if you do raise your hand, then Really and truly, you will find God the Father running to you. He'll throw his arms around you. He'll say, I love you. I'm really proud of you. And this afternoon, you can be embraced finally back in the arms of your loving, heavenly Father. Wonderful.